Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There's various ways that uh, governments are now trying to suppress the vote, and one of them is uh, a long line keeping people from voting. Um, we're trying to make sure that every ballot is counted, and we expect to be here. We're bringing in some more fresh people, because we've had people here all day. We expect this to go probably until midnight or more. It's about our voices. Say our voices. It's about our votes. Say our votes. It's about our time. Say our time. There's too many efforts here to take away our rights and to take history backwards. And I'm angered by it. I'm Roy S. Johnson. And I'm Eunice Elliott. And this is Panther. The long-anticipated Freedom March from Selma to Alabama's capital of Montgomery finally gets underway. If I died, I didn't care because I was dying for a purpose. We were afraid, but I guess the purpose was greater than the fear. This is Panther, Blueprint for Black Power, from Reckon Radio. This is the seldom told story of one of the most famous and notorious organizations in the Black Power movement and its origins in Lowndes County, Alabama. Is this a mess? The land of the free and the home of the brave. The one in Oakland started out one. they heard about us. These people wanted to vote. They wanted to pull the lever for the Black Panther and then go on home. And this is what they did. We come a long ways, but we got a, a long ways to go. Politicians have been trying to roll back the franchise all across the country. Voter ID, early voting, even the number of polling sites have all come under assault. Because we want to live as decent human beings in America. I believe in, in, in some, uh, maybe some years to come that this thing will work out. But at the present time, I don't believe it will work right, right now. The Lowndes County Freedom Organization fielded seven candidates in 1966. All seven, however, lost to their white opponent. But we're still talking about them today, almost 60 years later. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that, but part of it is that there could not have been a better test of the Voting Rights Act than an all-Black political party in rural Alabama. When those federal registrars came down to enforce the law, to force white races to allow Black voters to register and vote, that proved the VRA had teeth. 
Not enough, though, to keep white landowners from threatening Black tenants and busting them to the polls to vote for the white candidates. Even still, Black voters in Lowndes would not be silenced, even in the face of these election results. Just four years later, in 1970, there was a major LCFO victory. John Hewlett was elected as Lowndes County's very first Black sheriff. Regina Moore maintains that his victory was in no small part because he understood and embraced the true source of his power, the people. There were ideas about politics being grassroots, bottom-up, not top-down. I do think that there was this idea of, of realizing that your power comes from the, the people that you want to vote for you and not the other way around. And I do think that those principles carried on for, for several generations, even after the Lowndes County Freedom Party was no longer a, a political party. Black folks in Lowndes fought generations of voter suppression in the very space white folks tried to exclude them from, the voting booth. And they proved their power the power of the Black vote in 1966, even in defeat. And even though that party did not necessarily win in, in November of 1966, I think some of the biggest gains they did win was they sent a message to the white establishment in Lowndes County that said that we are an empowered voting block. And so I think the white establishment recognized that, yeah, we're going to have to eventually make room for, for these candidates within the Democratic Party, because if we don't, you know, we're going to give them a few election cycles and the Democratic Party in Lowndes County will be virtually non-existent. So it was almost like, do we make room or do we continue to shut them out and run the risk of not a single Democrat holding elected office in Lowndes County? And that wave of Black power rippled out of Lowndes County, changing the politics in places like Oakland, Chicago, Detroit, and beyond and changing the tactics of the two major political parties. In the 1970s, Democrats painted themselves as the party of the civil rights movement, of social change. Meanwhile, Republicans, headed by Richard M. Nixon, went all in on a Southern strategy to leverage the anger of white Southerners, angry at Black folks gaining power. In time, that realignment changed the parties in places like Alabama, too. There was this realization that maybe if we brand ourselves as Democrats, we can get more people and even those people who are reluctant to vote for a party that has a Black Panther as its symbol. But we can still embody those same ideals and those same goals and those same platforms, but we're just going to brand ourselves under a different political party. So I do think that the political realignment that we were seeing across the South after the Voting Rights Act, I think all of that played a part in the, the candidates in Lowndes County sort of abandoning the Lowndes County Freedom Party or the banner of the Lowndes County Freedom Party. Republicans couldn't even bridge to get enough people to buy a bar of soap at that time. The South was Democratic. And in some ways, the power of the Black voter is stronger than ever in the Democratic Party. Black voters in South Carolina delivered the nomination for Joe Biden in 2020. And looking ahead in 2024, they've moved to the front of the line for state primaries. But flocking under a single banner, the Democratic banner, it has its own downsides. Nowadays, it's a pretty widespread belief among Democratic candidates that Black voters can be counted on. Or let's just call it what it is. Black voters are taken for granted. 
usually at the at the elections, particularly like after what we saw happen in Georgia, when Georgia turned blue, you saw people on social media and even in the media saying, thank black women, thank black voters, thank Stacey Abrams, thank people like Latasha Brown and the Black Voters Matters organizers. So you want to thank all these black people, but my position is don't thank me, elect me. When it comes to public policy, it's almost like we're told, well, we don't want to have a, an all-Black agenda, so your issues, they need to wait. And so I often wonder what it would look like on a national level if the Democratic Party actually valued Black voters, because I often critique candidates, particularly at the state level here in Alabama, when they show up to Black communities last, because it's almost the assumption that you're going to vote for me anyway, so I need to pour my resources and my mobilizing efforts into these other communities because I know you're going to be there. So I I often wonder what it would look like if we had like a replication of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization at a national level where if you're running for office and you want my vote, you actually work for it. But also that you have a political platform that is bottom up and not top down. Speaking of 1966, let's circle back to the Voting Rights Act. That election was the one that proved the VRA had teeth. It wasn't a beast, but it did give organizers something to fight with, to fight back with. Here's Ed King. He was a teacher in Lounge back in the 1960s. What helped the thing was when uh, Kennedy got killed and uh, he had, I think, had drawn up that bill and it was passed under uh, Lyndon Johnson became president behind him. And... Uh, he passed the bill that everybody could become a registered voter, whether they could read or write or not, or they couldn't do anything but make an X. And that's when we start getting a, a larger number of people registered. And once Black folks wielded the power of the vote, that meant whites in power could be held accountable. They could be voted out, at least in theory. The VRA might have been a historic, nation-changing piece of legislation, but it was anything but popular with white folks in the South and pretty much all across the country. Particularly in light of the waves of Black voter registration it ignited. These days, some people have been working to dismantle it, to systematically eliminate its protections. And not just protections for Black voters, Eunice. For immigrants who've earned the right to vote. For young people who've owned the right to vote, some want to make it harder to do what citizens have every right to do. That systematic breakdown has happened in state houses and courthouses all across the nation. The most devastating blow came from the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013. The people of Lowndes County proved the VRA's power, but people elsewhere in Alabama Well, they were looking for ways to neutralize it. And in 2013, the people in Shelby County, just a little over an hour north of Lowndes County, found a way. And the Supreme Court invalidated a critical section of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, the Landmark Voting Rights Act. And what they did basically is throw out the part of the Voting Rights Act, it's called Section 4, that determined which states in this country with a history of discrimination, had to be granted Justice Department or court approval before they made any changes in their voting laws. That's called preclearance. In its 2013 ruling in Shelby County versus Holder, 
the Supreme Court effectively did away with preclearance. A number of states have been under, to put it simply, adult supervision for any new laws they wanted to pass that had to do with voting. Well, after the Shelby case, those states could legislate as they wished. No approvals or double-checking needed. Not a single parent in the room. No parental supervision, Eunice. Zero. To go a bit into the weeds with this, the court didn't say the supervision, the preclearance, was wrong. It said the law that determined which states were covered was wrong. But in fact, it's uh, just the same difference. Congress could come up with a new formula to say which states needed the watchful eye, but here we are, 10 years later, still waiting. Suddenly, areas covered by that preclearance requirement were free to do anything they wanted. Those areas could be as small as a county, but the entirety of nine states was also subject to preclearance. These days, after the Shelby ruling, state legislators get carte blanche. Before that, they needed to at least prove what benefit a law could give voters and how that law was not discriminatory before they could even put it into practice. Now, a discriminatory law may pass, well, let's just say quickly. Proving discrimination has to come later. We're talking about the slate of voter ID laws, absentee ballot rule shifts, and polling places nationwide being shut down. Mm, mm, mm. Thank you, Shelby County. And Alabama had another trick up its sleeve. At the end of 2021, a map of new voting districts was released. Now, this was a map where Black voting power was corralled and diluted to the extreme. But Black Alabamians, mm -mm, they wouldn't let that ride. They sued the state with Evan Milligan as the named plaintiff. Despite our best efforts to present alternative maps that we that we were saying would comply with uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, they still chose a map that diluted Black voting strength with no real justification. And so that's the sort of thing that you litigate on when it's in clear violation of the law. In October of 2022, Evans' argument made it all the way to the Supreme Court. The case was aimed at that part of the Voting Rights Act Evan just mentioned, Section 2. It's the part that makes diluting minority votes, drawing districts to hedge against a Black majority, illegal. Now, you should know, Evan's family roots, they run deep in Lowndes County. And he pulled from that history when he thought about how to make his case. Those activists back then and the artists and the ministers, you know, the labor organizers, they understood how to talk through those distances. And so with the Freedom Party, they were able to use art and use really simple bullets around like what their priorities are. But that initial limiting what the hierarchy of needs are and, and being able to articulate it in languages, school children were understanding it. That started in Lowndes County. You know, you look back at Stokely Carmichael just seeing pictures of him interacting with people in Lowndes County, like he is it's his whole self. It's his humor, it's his cheekiness, it's his bad boy thing. So, you know, when we saw our, our, our case kind of picking up steam, we thought about, well, how do we use our personalities as people from this actual culture and then tell our stories and invite people in based on that? So we tried to do that with our with our approach to public outreach, our website, we wrote some music that kind of says different things about the case, but it felt 
like the idea of it is is not new. It goes back to what they were doing with the party, Snick Freedom Singers, Fisk Jubilee Singers. It's an old thing of incorporating that culture into our political outreach. And we just tried to do it in our own way, you know, for the case. And in a somewhat surprising turn of events for this Supreme Court, it actually worked. In June of 2023, the court ruled that Alabama's map was, in fact, unconstitutional. But that doesn't mean the work is done, not by any stretch. Right now in Alabama, only one African-American, Representative Terry Sewell, represents Alabamians. Now, that's out of seven elected to serve the state in Congress. Just one in a state where Black folks make up nearly a third of the population? Long term from there is between now and 2031, doing as much work as we can to help more people understand the importance of participating in the census and participating in redistricting once that census data is released. And so we have that time to do training on how census numbers impact political districts, how political districts well, maps that house the political districts, how that impacts certainly elections, but also federal grants that are drawn down and distributed dollars distributed to communities based on census information. So even people that don't necessarily find an interest in voting or, or care much about the voting rights movement work, money is being made based on their presence. But to Evan, winning this case protecting the Voting Rights Act in the courts just doesn't quite cut it. He wants a more permanent solution. And the, the longer-term strategy beyond those is we need, a, we need an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that, one, establishes that American citizens of voting age have a right to vote and have a right to have that vote counted. That, like, we don't have an amendment now that says that. Like, there's all kind of reasons why that, why that wouldn't have been there. But at a, where we are right now as a, as a country, we can't continue to function where every few years we have this Supreme Court case or a conversation, and con- is Congress going to renew the Voting Rights Act? So having a constitutional amendment that takes some of that questioning off the table, I think can push some of our organizing and our litigation into the direction where we can then start addressing some of the policy questions that we really want to tackle. That work that got started in Lounge back in the 1960s still needs to be done today. That's where that constitutional amendment that Evan talked about the one to protect every citizen's right to have their vote counted, well, that's where that would come in. Because people in power today are still trying to kick folks out of the ballot box. And folks from Lowndes, the ones who fought this fight the first go-round, well, they're just fed up with it. You know, you can't go and pick which states you're going to help when they call for federal help. You're the United States, but... The thing over in Georgia and, 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 and even down in Florida, see, they're trying to do stuff to hurt, but you can't hurt me without hurting your own folks. So that's what a lot of people can't, don't realize. That's ridiculous. They're trying to suppress. They're trying to turn things back. It, it didn't make me feel good. I, I don't feel good behind that. I think every person should have the right to vote and it shouldn't be intimidated or be dealt with. 
overcome some of them things, but they look like they're trying to repeat themselves. Now they're rolling back <laughs> voting registration suppression again. How many years later? 50, 60 years later? It's crazy. That's still an issue today, even more so. I hope people of color and poor people realize uh, the importance of voting like never before. They don't understand how voting, political participation makes a difference. I'm a sticker for that voter rights. One man, one vote, less money in the system, and our mobilizing at the grassroots level. That's the thing from the 60s, and I'm going to stick with that. Regina Moore sees a clear parallel between the days of the LCFO and now. It's almost like we're seeing history repeat itself. The white residents in Lowndes County at the time, they didn't think that these people had overcome the fear. They thought that the fear was so deeply entrenched that even if they registered to vote, and there were hundreds of people who did register to vote and still did not show up, right? But for the ones that did, they didn't expect the turnout numbers to be that great. And so when we see what's happening in Georgia, once again, I think that the establishment or the Republicans did not expect enough people to turn out to flip Georgia blue. And so what we see Just like what we saw in Lowndes County, like the reaction is that once you stand in your truth and own your power, then those in power, those who seek to maintain a level of power over you, then they're going to escalate their attempts to keep you in your place or to maintain the status quo. But back in Lowndes County in 1966, life went on. That's when Panther returned. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As for what happened after the election, a lot of the SNCC folks headed out to start organizing elsewhere. They would come in and out. They wouldn't stand here then anymore. Everybody had lives. Some of those people had master's degrees and things. They went off to get themselves a job or they went into other areas. You see, they didn't come here to live. Some stayed for months at the time. Some came in occasionally. Now, Stoker came and stayed a while, and then he left. Bob Mann stayed in here for a long time. Then he moved back to Albany, Georgia, and got him a house and worked down there. Got married and had a family. But he later came back and moved in here and built him a house right up there, and he was here when he died. Here's his wife, Joanne. Now, I have letters that I saved of his. I thought they were love letters. (laughs) But uh, they were love letters from him about this county. And he was real sweet. He would always say, dear wife, and that sort of thing. And I was so in love. I thought they were just just love letters just for me. But it was love letters for this county. He truly loved this county long before we got here. Something Bob Mance and all the folks who worked with SNCC and the LCFO knew, the work is never, ever done. There will always be work to be done because there are people who are not going to move any further than you move them. 
Then there are people who wait for you to move the plate in front of them. And then if they don't be careful, they want you to bring your spoon to the mouth. But wait till they look up and see pie running, they can grab all the crumbs. But even so, the crumbs here were nothing to sniff at. The LCFO made real-world impact, back then and now too. It helped to create pride in a lot of people. It was able to get people out of Shannon's where they were seeing chickens under the house and get into a home with running water in it. A lot of them were able to buy land. That legacy is something Regina Moore saw front and center through the eyes of her grandmother. I was never socialized and introduced to politics as it being like Democrat or Republican. I was never taught to be either one of those, but to be more of an independent thinker when it comes to politics. And when you think about the Lyons County Freedom Organization, that's what it was. It was an independent political party. So I think it's no surprise that my family taught me to think independently about politics, but also to think in terms of community when you think about politics and to not think about political aims and political ambitions in a selfish way, but think about it in a holistic community way. Others paid attention to the LCFO's principles too, back then and today. I was just a child. I had no idea who these people were. I found out later, you know, because I became a history teacher. So to me, they were like the Paul Revere's of, of their time. You know, they, they were the ones who, who made freedom more of a reality than it was. That's Katherine Coleman Flowers, the environmental justice activist from Lowndes. She's dedicated her life to shedding light on injustice and inequality in one of the most vital, yet least glamorous, areas of life, water and sanitation. When she started organizing in Lounge, she stepped right into Snick's shoes. When I look back at, at everything that has happened in terms of my work around sanitation, I have to give credit to the organizers in SNCC who came to Lowndes County well before me and, and kind of laid the pattern. When we first start organizing and we had town hall meetings and we set the town hall meetings up at the five churches the first, in the same order in which they opened their churches up for SNCC to meet in the 1960s. Because of the years of their families legacy of working in the community. People trusted them. And that's how we were able to uncover what we uncover about the sanitation problem. That it wasn't just that people could not afford wastewater treatment. That these systems are also failing. And this is what failure looks like. And they trusted us to tell us this. And, and I think that's largely because of the SNCC legacy. And, and our way of doing things, even now when I when I'm in these you know, academic halls and talking to people about research and how we should learn to listen to people in the community. I mean, when we talk about the principles of environmental justice, you talk about SNCC, that's community engagement. You know, the people, the people have to be sitting at the table that are in the community. They should be the ones leading. Her fundamental takeaway from SNCC and the LCFO's work, education. We need to get back to helping people to discern Something as simple as the difference between a fact and an opinion. They don't know. And the way we can get at that is by, I think, teaching people what it means to be a citizen. And being a citizen means learning about all these documents that are the foundation for our laws. Education is vital. 
That's why we're here. To ensure everyone knows just what it was that Stokely Carmichael, SNCC, and the Lowndes County Freedom Organization pulled off not so far back in the day. To honor it. It was no small feat for anyone, anywhere, but especially for the Black folks in rural Lowndes County, Alabama. Forget specific election outcomes. The LCFO caused ripples that spanned the nation and through time. Just look at the other Black Panther Party, the one out in Oakland. Its founders were so inspired directly by the work of the LCFO that they decided to take the very same mascot. An idea arose in Stokely's mind in Alabama that led to a speech in Berkeley that gave birth to a movement, a movement for Black power, a movement that's still going, still evolving today. And so we know that the aim for SNCC was to replicate the Lowndes County Freedom Organization or the Lowndes Project throughout the South. So Lowndes County helped to shape the path in the movement of SNCC even after that 1966 election. And you look at like Lowndes County, during that time, the South had more black elected officials than anybody in the country. And it was based on the fact that they did it from pure grassroots from the bottom up, one man, one vote, organizing, mobilizing, getting people, and this stuff, what you got to work at, and not just throw money. This is the legacy of the LCFO, the strategy, the principles, and also the results, bringing disenfranchised voters into the fold and offering them the chance to vote for someone whose life looks like theirs. Whether or not we actually see it realized in every Black candidate that runs for office here, I do think that that spirit still lives on in terms of the way that people approach politics here. People lost their lives so we can do it, and I think it's very important to this day that we uh, that we vote. Some folks say that their vote won't make no difference, but it does. That'll be a part of me as long as I live. You heard them. The work of the LCFO is and always will be a part of them. And in many ways, that's true for a lot of people. A lot more than you think. This podcast is called Panther Blueprint for Black Power for a very good reason. The LCFO's organizing laid the groundwork, not just for the Black Panther Party that lifted us in the 1970s and beyond, but also for new generations of organizers and activists, those working in elections and beyond. And in turn, the Black Panther Party that emerged in Oakland influenced movements all around the country, even in the rural South. These movements were in constant conversation with one another, learning from one another, building on one another. The work of SNCC and the LCFO is thriving today, whether you know it or not. In our next episode, you'll hear from a few folks who are putting these lessons from Lowndes to good use, who are still fighting some of these same fights for the right to vote. For Black Power. Next time on Panther. And I think that our jobs, or at least I see my job, is consistently creating an environment that doesn't make people comfortable or that pushes them to have to ask a question, that asks the question of what is my responsibility. Panther is produced by Reckon Radio in partnership with Pod People. It's hosted by me, Roy S. Johnson. And me, Eunice Elliott. 
Our executive producer is John Hammondry with additional writing, reporting, and production for Reckon by Isaiah Murtaugh, Sarah Weitz-Kodischek, and R.L. Maeve. Special thanks to Kelly Scott, Katie Johnson, Minda Honey, Abby Crane, and Tom Bates. And at Pod People, Ann Fuse, Alec McManus, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Ashton Carter, Rebecca Chasson, John Asante, and Carter Wogan. Our theme music is composed by Jelani Akil Bowman. Head to Reckon.News to learn more about the events featured in today's episode. And please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts.